share with you the journey of writing my third novel, The Sound Mirror. This isn't necessarily a how-to for those of you who are just joining us, but more of a um, confiding in and hopefully you coming along with this kind of interesting and extraordinary and baffling and frustrating endeavour of writing another novel. Um... Yeah, hello. I think I've got a few listeners, which is incredibly exciting. Um, I know this because they've written in and answered some of my questions. So let's make like a tomato and catch up. Um, Hello, Steve, Nina Marie, Anna, Ariel, and various others of you, including some of my former students. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for listening. Um, I asked you guys to tell me what you were reading and writing and what you're up to and also of course your procrastination tactics, successful or not. So I thought I'd share those with you guys too. Um, So Steve Fimbo, who I've known for a while actually, he's an incredible author. One of his books I really love and it's particularly apt right now. It's called Notes from the Sick Room. Um, and I'm lying in bed in my sick bed recording this right now and writing so it's very apt um, really you should check out his work uh, he's currently reading Mark Fisher's K-Punk The Collected and Unpublished Writings I'm a huge fan of Mark Fisher and um, the fact he's no longer around uh, is just such a loss and heartbreaking obviously for his family um, but a real loss for us his work was incredible Steve's also writing a book called Being and Happiness. He says it's his last ever. I bloody hope not, Steve. Um, And his procrastination method is cooking, which he was doing as he wrote me this message, whilst listening to music and drinking beer. Yeah, drinking always works for me. Um, Nina Marie Gardner is a playwright um, and wrote this really, really quite beautiful novel called Sherry and Narcotics. Um... She is reading book three of Virginie Despente's Vernon subtext series, but she says she's reading it in French, so it's very slow going. Um, that's pretty funny. Um, she devoured books one and two in English, uh, and it's driving her crazy trying to get through the French. You'll be amazing by the time you finish that book. Um, she says her procrastination method is going for a run or taking her cute little dog Bean for a walk. That's not really procrastinating, is it? I mean, that's that's being healthy. That's that's you know taking a dog out. That's pretty good. Um, oh, speaking of dogs, we have a new puppy um, called Vira. Um, we sadly lost our beautiful dog Rose a couple of weeks ago. Um, she had to be put down from cancer. So if she suddenly starts barking, she's pretty barky. I will cut us off because she's very loud. So that will make sense. I'm still getting to grips with this editing stuff. So we'll see. Um, The wonderful Anna Vault also wrote in. And she says she never procrastinates. That She was a slow starter. And so she just gets to it in amongst a gaggle of pets, cats, children, husband, 
work, etc. She just sits there and gets on with it. So that's pretty radical. And you put the rest of us all to shame. Um, it's been a pretty uh, interesting week for the Booker Prize as well. And a controversial week for the Guardians, not the Booker Prize. Do prizes matter to you? Do they affect what you um, read? Do you start reading what's on the shortlist? I don't usually, if I'm honest, I'm such a contrary Mary. And if everyone else is doing something, going somewhere, reading something, watching something, then I don't usually, which is admittedly a bit bloody-minded and stupid. But there we are. I hate to be super earnest. Um, And if that means I'm late to the party, then so be it. I'm saying um a lot. I'm sorry. I'm going to try not to. It's because I've not written any notes and I'm just freestyling this. And this is about the fourth time I've tried to record it because I've been getting text messages and phone calls and uh, Anyway. Do prizes matter? I've got to be honest. I have started reading Daisy Johnson's Everything Under. So I've just contradicted myself because I said I don't read what's on the shortlist. But I'm really enjoying it. It's... it's a really interesting take on the Oedipus Rex myth uh, archetype, if you like. So that's been an interesting read. So I'm kind of caught up with culture in a way, sort of. But do they matter? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm not going to fucking lie. I'd love to win a prize, a major prize. Of course I would. And people that say they don't want to and they don't care and they think it's a load of shit, I think they're being disingenuous. Maybe. Um, they certainly raise your profile. I am having said that though, they're entirely subjective. It's not like you are running a race and the first person to break the ribbon gets the medal. I mean, they're entirely subjective. So there's that. And of course, some of those major prizes cost an absolute fortune to enter, or you certainly have to commit to paying um, a considerable amount towards marketing and reprinting books and things, which means that they are not accessible to independent and small publishers. So that narrows the field considerably. So there's that to take into account. But, you know, some fancy-ass prize knocked on my door. I'm not going to shut the door in their face, am I, really? All right, so procrastination station. I've just had my birthday, so I've spent lots of time celebrating that rather than writing though I have been writing a bit and tonight I'm going to go and see Gwyneth Herbert's new show Letters I Haven't Written but that's not procrastination that's nourishment it's going to be incredible and anyway as Steve Finbo says the work is always happening even if we try to pretend it's not somewhere in our unconscious we are taken away in there aren't we the work is happening So, maybe procrastination is essential. I think so. That's what we're going to go with. We need procrastination in order to nourish our creative selves, our creative souls. We need that warm, cosy feeling of doing something else to replenish our stores of genius. Yes, I did just use that word because I'm a tosser. Moving on from that embarrassing moment... The Graft. All right, let's talk about the writing. Um, I said last week that we'd talk about characters in The Sound Mirror. Um, um, 
And of course, characterization is huge, or the character is huge. And when anyone's teaching or creative writing or discussing the craft, I think we focus a lot on character. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, character is plot, and plot is character. And so a lot of focus is spent on getting characters right. I know I talk about it a lot with my students, and we talk about detail and action and complexity I always like to think about how my characters suffer and digging in beneath the surface it's about stripping them back not how they change and how they grow necessarily but how they become more nakedly revealed in front of us I think (laughs) my dog is snoring in the background and now itching so I'm not sure (laughs) god there's a cacophony of snores anyway i'm trying to be very serious um so characterization or the characters of course they are central and they are driving everything that's going on but the more we get bogged down by rules and the shoulds and shouldn'ts and the musts and the must nots the more difficult sometimes i think it becomes Um, And this is not to put down going to class or MAs in creative writing. And I mean, I teach on them and I love teaching on them. But sometimes all of those sort of craft rules and guidelines can be so limiting. I know that when I finished my master's, I couldn't write for ages. It really knocked my confidence. Um, They don't always, of course, but for me it was quite difficult I had to refine my way out again and get beyond um, limitations that had seemed to have been set but most of the time it is the character that we are drawn to as well as the beautiful writing in the prose and certainly in genre fiction a dynamic character is going to be your engine of the plot so it is essential but for me and what I'm writing certainly for the sound mirror I'm trying to strip back those layers trying to find what it is that is provoking these women in my text to action and so I said last week that I'm writing about these generations of women beginning in the 20th century it might I might weave in others as well from before but we'll see um when that dna that sort of architecture of personality how we become what we become those experiences those little pricks and prods those moments that inaugurate us that that kick us into action that may have started generations back so that intergenerational trauma so i might build in more but that's all part of the play, isn't it? Um, but at the moment, there's three central characters, a contemporary character who is going to kill her mother and two grandmothers, the paternal maternal grandmother. And they are really loosely based, really loosely based on my own family because they're so interesting. And I think, womanhood and selfhood in the 20th century of course is going through enormous changes there's the wars and civil rights and social change and rights for women 
Um, but for those women born in the early part of the 20th century, they would often encounter, particularly women of certain classes, they would encounter oppression or uh, certainly a lack of opportunity. Um, is it any wonder they started to go crazy? Certainly in my family there was the colonialism impacts our history too and that's something I'm really interested in exploring because I think these women's lives um, can be used not as a symbol because I think that's really cheap and cheeky but uh, a distillation in some way of those changes our society has gone through certainly in the UK um, that's where I'm going with it and I wrote something a, quite a long time ago actually called Authentic Violence The Case for Autofiction because I'm really concerned with not being offensive or difficult or using other people's stories in order to tell one I'm interested in in a way that commits some sort of textual violence which sounds like hyperbole I know but there, I think, is a as an author, there is a responsibility to not just take any material and mangle it and wield it in a way that suits my purposes without being sensitive to those around me. So I am certainly creating a fiction, even though I'm using stories I have heard to inspire the novel I'm writing. So I have these characters, one called Pearl, whose family are second, she's second generation immigrant from Italy, living in Kent. They're a working class family, has to leave school very young, super bright, but begins to slowly, slowly, slowly become very ill. She's very mentally ill and there's a sense that this is a poison running through the blood of her generations. And really it's a young woman held back by endless childbirth, hard work, no opportunity, and how she finds herself and develops and how she forges relationships with her children for good or ill, and they're not always for the good. Um, and then the other woman, I haven't really figured out a name for her yet, she is born in India, She's Anglo-Indian, so mixed race. Her father's in the army. So there's that conflict and difficulty of colonial Britain and India. And she comes home with a partition. And it's her trying to settle into the UK and raise her children and find her sense of fulfilment, which she doesn't, frankly. And they are not likeable characters particularly, and I don't care. What I want is for them to be sympathetic, for us to un understand something about ourselves, really. And certainly for the contemporary character, it's those two women's lives that she's attempting to make sense of in order to understand the mother, who is an absent presence. Because, of course, those two women create the mother. And so she's left out. In terms of she, we don't have her own voice in any way, shape or form, but we do hear her, feel her, see her through the eyes of others. And I think that's so um, 
interesting because, of course, that's how characters are revealed. They reveal themselves through their actions, but also through how others see them. Um, I was thinking about something I read about from Levinas, where he writes, the other person escapes my grasp by an essential dimension, even if I have him at my disposal. And it's that ungraspability that a person can never be completely known. And that when we're encountering another person, we're encountering the limits of our own selves, our own potential for imagination, our own empathy, if you like. We can't truly be accurate. We can't... What is the truth when we're encountering others? It's always about our own selves, really. And that's what I'm trying to do with these characters. So, of course, I'm thinking about detail. I'm thinking about what they look like, sound like, their voices. I want to experiment and play with that. I'm thinking about the historical context they're in, those spaces. Oh, my God, wouldn't it be amazing if I could go to India on a little research trip? But that's another thing. Um, I'm thinking about their behaviours and... The, the temporal chronological limitations on their behaviors and the limits on their experiences but also of course their suffering and their demons why they did what they did they did some really cruel things um the women that i'm basing on in real life but also on in the fiction in the way i'm going about it but that doesn't make them cruel they are, of course, just complex human beings. I'm using some of my own life in that the contemporary figure doesn't know one of the grandmothers. Um, they don't want to know her. She grows up with only one side of the family. And so that I find really interesting because there's a sort of fading in and out a reverberation of those voices, whereas the family she grew up with is very strident and strong, painted in more dynamic colours, if you like. So there's a sort of play with language and memory and knowledge in those terms, in what fades into the background and has a sort of distant view, perspective, and then what comes very much the foreground. But all of it, is an imaginary knowing, an imaginary meeting with these extraordinary women who continue really to haunt me and their stories continue to lead me and to tantalise. Where do we come from? That's what I'm asking. And I think all novels perhaps all works of art, but for me, certainly literature, that's precisely what it's doing. It's exploring what it is to be a human. And the sound mirror with these characters is where I'm exploring what it is ultimately to be me, because I'm only ever going to encounter the limits of my own self, no matter how much I try to see the other as clearly as possible. So I thought I might read to you... Um, an extract from both Pearl and the other character. I don't know what to call her. Anyway, we'll, we'll come up with something. So two short extracts 
um, so you get a sense of what I'm trying to do with the different voice. Remember, first craft, first draft, so be kind. They're all standing, waiting in the siding, their names on brown labels hanging from their necks, along with their gas masks. Sucking fingers, thumbs, chewing nails. Catch worms doing that. Pearl peeks over at her mum, standing with the other parents. Marianne, the new baby in her arms, and little June at her side. They're staying at home because they're so little. Her mum looks worried, biting her lip and blinking a lot. Some of the other kids are scared and crying for their mothers, but Pearl ain't. She ain't even holding her big sister Annie's hand. It's bedlam of all the crowding and the crying and the train up in clouds of steam, but a man in a uniform with a clipboard is walking around like he knows what he's doing. And anyway, won't it be nice to get away from the bombs and that stinking cold shelter that lets the rain in and that awful siren that goes off even when she's at school and that sounds like her brother Bert crying when he's got a stuffed up nose. She don't like watching the dog fights, not even way up in the sky, not even the time they watched a crowd playing at it and the men drop out dangling under their white parachutes like unraveled yo-yos. She wants to get out of there and she's heard Wales is like heaven, all clean and fresh air and mountains with ladies in funny tall hats. But when they arrive in Wales, hungry and tired and are sitting on the floor in the cold village hall waiting to be collected by their new family, she changes her mind. She don't like the strange voices and the looming hills and the sheep and cows and words even she can't read. She sits close to Annie and holds Bert's sticky hand tight as the hall empties out, kid by kid. There's only a few of them left. A nice-looking lady comes, looks them over and smiles. She even shakes her hands. I can only take two, she says, and there's a bit of whispering and the adults look over at her and the lady in charge of it all says, Never mind, you'll see each other in school. You're only down the road from each other. And then Pearly stood there all alone with tears scratching the back of her eyes and Annie has to carry Bert, he's that upset. She hates Mrs Nash from the off. She hates the coat she's wearing over her apron, an ugly hat she's pulled down over her short grey hair. She hates the way Mrs Nash looks at her like she's the last loaf in the shop. She hates the way Mrs Nash stomps off down the road, leaving her to run along behind. When Pearl catches up, Mrs Nash says, I won't put up with any of those dirty London ways, not in my house. When Pearl answers, I ain't from London, Mrs Nash sneers and says, Think we're clever, do we, Miss High and Mighty? The Nashes is at the end of a small terrace. The woman leads her down the side passage and leaves her in the yard. Wait there, take your things off and put them in that bucket. When she comes back, she's taken off her coat and hat and is carrying a strange pair of scissors. Come on then, we haven't got all day. Mrs Nash watches as Pearl takes off her pullover and frock and puts them in the bucket with her coat. Everything, the woman says. No. She ain't a baby no more, but she wants her mum. She wants Annie and Bert and she wants to go home. But she ain't a baby and she's not going to let some old woman push her around. I'm keeping me drawers on. Suit yourself. You can sleep in the shed with the other filthy animals, but I'll not have you in my house until I know you're clean, you nasty, lousy thing. Mr Nash is all right, though. At tea, he says, you're small for eight, aren't you? We'd better feed you up. And he puts more potatoes on her plate. Don't spoil her, his wife says. She'll eat us out of house and home. I've already had to boil all her clothes. She was crawling alive with fleas. Mr Nash winks. Did someone mistake you for a sheep? Pearl shakes her head. Her scalp is cold and sore and even worse. Her hair was her only prettiness. 
You look like you've been shorn. Not to worry. I'll get you a nice hat to wear to school. Yeah, he was all right, that Mr Nash, even if he was a Methodist. Even so, she ate the single bed with the neat corners and the quiet that seeps into your bones with its chilly loneliness that not even the wireless can stop. And her poor, bald head itches, itches like mad. It is said, she was told, that if a pregnant woman gazed at the Himalayas and wished for a beautiful child, it would be so. But now she is far from the mountains. Thousands of sea miles from her ayah, from the crumbling brick of the bungalow where spiders hung like Christmas ornaments. Far from the pure heat of summer and furious damp of monsoon. Peacock blue and elephant grey, teacups and pearl inlays, closer now to the place they called, her father at least, home. She leans on the railings, watching the gunmetal sea lift and fall. Was it that colour because of the war? from the remnants of bombs and the killing machines dissolving in the salt water. She had seen the newsreels, read the papers, even though the war was far, far away. She had heard Aya crying at night when her brother didn't return from Egypt, fighting for the bloody British. Now they were heading for bloody Britain. She is alone for once, looking out to sea and wearing her best frock and a stolen smudge of lipstick. She was the only one who hadn't gotten sick. The others, her mother and sister, the other army wives and children, were all green at the gills and had been from the off. The ghastly food hadn't helped, or being on the port side of the ship. Thirty-eight days from Calcutta, pressing through the violence of the ocean, crossing the burning line of the equator and back again, and now finally rounding the rock of Gibraltar towards England. Did you make that wish, Mummy? she had asked, sat on the veranda, skirt tucked around her knees, her parents drinking from tall glasses of gin and tonic. Yes, as a matter of fact, I did, when I was pregnant with your sister. Her father cleared his throat. And not for me? Her mother raised the heavy lids of her dark eyes and gazed at her. No, we weren't anywhere near the mountains then. But never mind. She looked away. Of course her sister was beautiful and beloved, and that was why she got to stay at home, while she was sent to boarding school with the wretched nuns, far away from trouble and temptation. Not hers, but his. His. But still, you take the shame with you, and the secrets. She has left behind her piano, her pretty birds in their gilt cage, and her ayah, soft skin and voice and care. She has left behind her books, the wild roses growing in the hedges, the scent of cumin and turmeric, indigo and pinks, Puffs of laundry steam, stiff with starch, the flatbreads and servants' chatter, anger and white cloth, the riots and fury. The children shitting and playing and dying in the streets, the thrum of the spinning jenny and the old unbelonging, the old unbelonging, there over the rise of the sea and the rising curve of the new earth, she will arrive to a new unbelonging. She is prepared, though, because her mother told her so. So I would recommend reading your work out loud because you really do hear its mistakes and disjunctions and where it goes flat. It's funny because I'm listening to that and playing it back and I'm thinking about what details do you need 
that show where we are and what becomes just cliche. And I'm using stories told to me and then ideas and places I've been to create this. But I need, I think, to find a way of playing with the points of view and the voices and those details so that we're not adhering to lazy old tropes and stereotypes. That's what I think I'm going to be working on more. I'm also going to experiment with free and direct style so that the differences in the voices are clear. Um, I really don't want this to be a traditional linear novel. It won't work. It's not what it's about. It needs to be idiomatic so that style and structure match the subject that we're weaving and playing and tangling so that there is a logical connection rather than a chronological unfolding. That's what I need to be playing with. So I think next week we'll be talking a bit more about point of view and structure and time, as well as hopefully, fingers crossed, chatting with a special guest. So more about that later. I'm really hoping someone very special will come on. Um, and I'll be announcing that in a little... Uh, mini sewed as it were if I manage to land that fish there's a tiny little clue there in the meantime tell me how you procrastinate please tell me what you're up to I'm lying here bored in my bed no I'm not really bored I'm reading but I'd love to hear from you guys so let me know what you're up to Please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. It's only going to get better, I promise. Um, we are now on iTunes. Yay! I don't know if that actually goes to someone listens to it and then says okay and approves it. I don't know. Maybe it's an algorithm. Maybe I'm just romantic thinking some little person listens to them and gives them a tick beforehand. But we are now on iTunes. So please do rate and review, subscribe, spread the word. Ta-ta for now. Chat to you soon. Happy writing.